May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. On today's episode, we will continue the conversation with Dr. Dobson. Dr. Dobson and I discuss ADHD. ADHD and fibromyalgia often coexist and treatment of ADHD can have major impact on ADHD and other related problems. There will be several topics we discuss. We'll continue discussing more about the impact of sleep and have some counterintuitive thoughts on how the treatment of ADHD impacts treatment of insomnia. This is especially important because many people who have fibromyalgia and related issues also have insomnia. We also will look at the impact on somebody's lifespan with untreated ADHD. And we'll hear Dr. Dobson's story. Why is he so interested and how did he become so interested in helping those who struggle with ADHD? And we also will learn about rejection sensitivity dysphoria. You'll hear more about it. It's something I didn't even know about when I wrote my book and was published over a year ago. Find it very fascinating and applies so much to fibromyalgia. And here's some clips for the show. One of the sayings in the field is, where else in medicine can you turn somebody's life around this afternoon the way you can when you treat ADHD? But if you ask people with ADHD the question, again, asking the right question is important. Virtually 100% of people with ADHD will endorse that as a major problem. And the question is, for your entire life, have you always been much more sensitive than other people you know to rejection, teasing, criticism, or your own perception that you have failed or fallen short? 95% of adults with ADHD go, wow, that's me. That's always been me. Have you been following me around? That's my life. Welcome to the Conquering Your Fibromyalgia podcast, where my goal is to give real answers and real solutions to real pain, fatigue, and brain fog. Who am I and what authority do I have to give a podcast on fibromyalgia? Well, I've been a physician for over 25 years. I'm a pediatrician, an internist, which is a medical doctor for adults, as well as certified in lifestyle medicine and clinical lipidology. I hope to weave the best of medical management with the best of lifestyle and use an evidence-based approach to give information in a digestible delivery, both through the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain, as well as through this podcast. Remember that this podcast is meant for educational purposes only and should not replace 
an office visit with your physician or medical provider. I hope that this will be a supplement to your office visits as well as to what's covered in the book. This podcast is meant for you if you have fibromyalgia, if you have a loved one who has fibromyalgia, or if you are a physician or healthcare provider who wants to learn more about how to take excellent care of your patients with fibromyalgia. My hope is to help you as you go on the bold journey from not just surviving fibromyalgia, but reducing the suffering and even reversing fibromyalgia. You can show your support for the podcast by leaving a review and sharing with others and hitting the follow or subscribe button wherever you're listening to podcasts. And now on to this week's episode. Yeah, and, and as you say that, that brings uh, gives me goosebumps because that is one of these where, similar to fibromyalgia, it is sort of, and similar to the homeless analogy, is that it's tying together these connections. I am guessing that, and you know, I'm sure the data on this, but I'm guessing there's a high percentage of those who are homeless who have ADHD. 80% of homeless people have ADHD, eight zero. Mm-hmm. It's a huge contributor to um, homelessness. The VA did a study some years ago looking at honorably discharged veterans. So they, they thrived in the, in the military who were homeless. They could, they could thrive in the structure of the military, but they got out and there was just no structure and they ended up on the streets. 81% of, um, excuse me, 83% of um, homeless veterans had previously unrecognized ADHD. Another thought, too, is the high rates of PTSD with ADHD and, and recognition of the ADHD in those who have PTSD and then treating that as part of therapy. Again, I consider the overlap often with ADHD and fibro is that I use the analogy of an alarm. Pain and anxiety are both alarms, right? We should have appropriate anxiety. We should have appropriate pain to appropriate stimuli that's causing us. Pay attention to this. (laughs) And pay attention. But when it's not causing tissue damage or it's a lower level of tissue damage than what the pain signal is and similar, but for some it's often it's there that paralyzing anxiety, that paralyzing pain, that working through that, again, PTSD is on the extreme level of anxiety on that spectrum and that high comorbidity. And I know there's studies that they're doing in recognizing that. And if you think about the ones who are veterans, often it's the person who's was an athlete, liked being active, didn't want to go to college, loved the idea of going to basic training, being active, doing stuff. And, and they would be bored sitting on the base waiting for action. They want to go out and get the enemy and, and their mom's at home praying them, please don't let them go out and leave the base. And they're bored. So they're smoking, whether it's marijuana or cigarettes, and they're keeping active. And now when they don't have something to do, they get back to the real world and they don't know how to integrate 
as well. And that can be a huge struggle. Can I I go back one topic? Because I I think it's important. That was um, people with both uh, uh, fibromyalgia and ADHD having trouble falling and staying asleep. Um, Because the best treatment is totally counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, in medicine, the axiom is that it's always better to treat the cause of a symptom rather than merely suppress the symptom. And so with ADHD, the treatment of the insomnia of ADHD is to take another dose of stimulant medication, which when you mention that to most patients, they go, are you kidding? Didn't I just spend the last 15 minutes telling you how hard it was for me to turn off and go to sleep, and you want me to take a stimulant? Nonetheless, that's what works. So what we do is we fine-tune the medication, the stimulant medication, and then on an afternoon, on a Saturday or Sunday, when they can, I ask them, take a nap on your medication. For many of them, it's the first time they've ever napped in their lives. But again, these medications have that paradoxical effect that when you take a stimulant, you calm down, you you stop fidgeting and stuff like that. And what they find is they sleep great on their ADHD stimulant. Then they know if they take another dose at night, they're not going to be bouncing around. Their thoughts are not going to be bouncing around. And about 90, 95% of them sleep absolutely normally. But most people never think to give that a try. So that's, that's going to be the best treatment of that initiation insomnia. That hyperarousal, like you said, and part of that is that hyperaroused nervous system, but inappropriately aroused. And I, and ironically, it is, you know, you can take a nap, but you can actually, well, one is they probably were more productive. Maybe they did a bunch of work, accomplished tasks, did stuff, and were completing tasks. So their wife isn't looking at them like, you lazy bum. I had a, a patient of mine who I got a chance to diagnose shortly after college. He had been treated with anxiety, high IQ engineer, got got through, did okay, but treated, and we treated the ADHD and doing well, and then had a chance to go through his stages in life, eventually uh, engaged, married, pregnant, having a baby. And he'd say, well, I don't take it on the weekend. He'd say earlier when he was single and then engaged through this, and I said, well, well, why not? He's like, well, when I take it, I feel like I want to get stuff done, and when I don't take it, I feel like I can just, you know, look at TikTok videos and, and YouTube and just sort of sit there. And I don't feel like, you know, I have to do something. I said, okay. But I said, just so you know, when you're married and have kids, your wife isn't going to think it's really cool that, hey, this is dad's, dad never does anything on the weekend. He just sits around and does <laughs> <laughs> and, and and just just that's just how he is don't expect a lot you know he just that's his he's in his own world and I said well just so you know you're gonna have a lot more to do when you have a baby there's less time more to do and as life gets more and more complicated and that's often where when you look historically where you have often fibro symptoms becoming more manifest is when they start having kids and there's a, a listener of mine who sent me an email and I want to do a podcast on pregnancy and fibromyalgia, but is is importance of exercising. But if you have now more, it's, it's concerned you can't exercise because you're going to hurt the baby or maybe gain more weight because of impulsive eating. You know, we talked also again with the weight. Um, I've When I see somebody who has a history historically 
of a lot of weight gain during their pregnancy, there's much higher rates of having ADHD because now this was the time, especially in women where they might've been very, very careful in watching their weight, but hey, I'm eating for two, I can get away with this. And they might have a lot more stress, more anxiety, and they are self-medicating that because they quit smoking or marijuana use because they know it's terrible. But you know what? I can indulge with some Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I got these donuts and other things. And then you see this history of 60 pound weight gain. And then you get into these higher rates of other comorbid issues like binge eating disorder, even uh, anorexia because of gestational diabetes and all of these things. And one of another key point too, is it's clear treating this is very important. It's a very important for so many things. Dr. Barkley did a study and it showed about 11 years shorter lifespan in those who have untreated ADHD. 13 years. 11, 13 years, which under age 40, it's most likely suicide, drug overdoses, and car accidents. And then when you're over 40, it's all of the bad maladaptive lifestyle choices of smoking, marijuana use, alcohol, obesity, and the American life or Western lifestyle. There's people around the world, but eating the calorie dense foods, weight gain, so premature heart disease, liver failure, lung cancer, smoking, all those other related issues shortening the adult life. Now, lifestyle issues. And this doesn't mean everybody here who has this is doing all of these to say everybody has all of these issues, but it does put you at more risk. And sometimes for some people, it might've been, I saw my parent was addicted. I knew I wasn't going to do that because I saw the destruction. So they build a, build a wall around that. And they realize I need to be active every day to feel normal. I've often heard that in patients when I take a, just a general history doc, I need to work out 90 minutes vigorously every day to feel normal. And that's often these higher rates. People with fibromyalgia, don't have fibromyalgia or don't have ADHD feel good when they exercise, but it isn't like they I have, gotta to. have it. I have to wear myself out. So one interesting thing, I this one more on a personal level, how did you become interested in ADHD? Obviously you, and can I ask when, what decade uh, you went through medical residency? My residency was from 96 to 80. Okay. I mean, 70, 76 to 80. <laughs> okay. Wake up. It's early in the morning here. So clearly you didn't, and maybe you did have a professor who had a special interest, but how did you get interested in ADHD? Can you share your, your story on that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that is more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. I've just always liked people with ADHD. They're so much fun. They're so interesting. They know the latest jokes. They're just, they're great patients, and they do so well. One of the sayings in the field is, where else in medicine can you turn somebody's life around this afternoon the way you can when you treat ADHD? It it is so gratifying because the medications are completely effective and wonderful. You know, we don't have to putz around waiting for weeks and stuff like that. We're going to see a positive response in an hour. So it's, I, when I was a resident, 
I and another resident started a clinic for kids with ADHD and learning disabilities at a local hospital, and it's still running. Then I went to Georgetown and um, started an ADHD and learning disability clinic there. I got away from that doing chemical dependency work, working with people who were chronically relapsing alcoholics and drug addicts. These are people who went to two AA meetings a day, and they still couldn't put together a month's worth of sobriety. And we found that more than half of them had untreated ADHD, and that when we treated the ADHD, they did great. They um, they went at, at two-year follow-up. All but one had been completely clean and sober for those two years. Made a huge difference. So it's I keep on coming back to ADHD because it's such a fun way to make a living. It's so rewarding, and I think for many physicians having a patient on their schedule who has fibromyalgia often is perceived as the most unwanted patient type there. And I think often the person who has been to multiple psychiatrists for ADHD symptoms, tried on multiple occasions, maybe was labeled as bipolar and tried on all these antipsychotics and other medicines and still struggling Often they're like, how am I supposed to figure this out? For many, this is a primary care driven. There's not enough adult psychiatrists, even if they all treated this, to treat and diagnose. There's just, there's not enough. There's a, there's a paucity of, of providers. And I have the same, I love helping those adults with ADHD, but also with fibromyalgia because you can have an impact. And when you've had such severe struggling, the title of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain, is that this is a real problem. Just like fibromyalgia, ADHD, those are real things. They're neurobiological things that have an impact. It's not oh, an imaginary thing. And very impairing. Can I, uh, how, how much time do we have? I want you got to as get much to... time as you want. We're, oh, I'm going to make this into a multi-part discussion. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> when I was talking about it, the me ADHD was three things. It's the cognitive piece that people with ADHD have a nervous system that works on interest and not at all on importance. For people with ADHD, the importance that organizes and motivates the rest of the world is nothing but a nag. Can't use it at all. Second thing is the sleep disturbance that is what really gets them into drug abuse trying to self-medicate their sleep disturbance. The third piece is the emotional component, which only in the last year, something like that, have they started looking at. Again, the American researchers have pretty much paralyzed the field in five years. And so in Europe, it's called emotional dysregulation. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's a very vague concept. And what I have gravitated to in the United States is, and again, it's not an official diagnosis by any means, but if you ask people with ADHD the question, again, asking the right question is important. Virtually 100% of people with ADHD will endorse that as a major problem. And the question is, for your entire life, have you always been much more sensitive than other people you know to rejection? teasing, criticism, or your own perception that you have failed or fallen short. 95% of adults 
with ADHD go, wow, that's me. That's always been me. Have you been following me around? That's my life. That's a very long-winded question. Comes out of an old psychiatric textbook, and it's the definition of, again, another unofficial term called rejection sensitive sensitivity dysphoria, RSD. And what it means is that people with ADHD are hardwired to be particularly vulnerable to the perception that someone else has withdrawn their love, approval, or respect. Now, nobody likes that. Nobody likes being rejected. But for people with ADHD, it's like two orders of magnitude greater. It's devastating. It's catastrophic. It, the person just hits a wall. They cease to function when they perceive that somebody has rejected them or that they've rejected themselves because they didn't meet their own standards. And so it's, it's a major problem. Thus, thus far, it's only been out in the um, uh, lay literature, but when it got put on Reddit, it got more feedback, more comments on Reddit, on their subreddit on ADHD, than any topic they'd ever had before. Uh, when uh, it was at um, ADHD, the, the great website from Jessica McCabe, she said she was really ambivalent about putting it up there that, you know, she looked in the literature, there was nothing there. Uh, she said, but she'd had more people request a unit on RSD uh, than any other topic she'd ever had. And because she recognized that she had it. And so okay. then she put up something, even though there wasn't anything in scientific literature. If you go to uh, YouTube, there are now more than 100 videos on rejection-sensitive dysphoria. So it's, it's the emotional component of ADHD. And so um, it's, it's a totally different experience. It's triggered by a perception of the loss of love, approval, or respect, and the pain is overwhelming. But it's indescribable. People can't describe the, the essence of what it feels like. They can only describe the intensity. It's awful, it's terrible, that sort of thing. But they can't tell you what it feels like. And the guys who were originally uh, researching this back 60 years ago at Harvard kept running into this. They would, you know, they were pestering the research subjects. What does it feel like? What does it feel like? And finally, the research subjects would just turn and say, look, stop pestering me with that. I can't find the words to tell you what it feels like. But I want you to know, I can hardly stand it. And so it was that that got put in the name. The United Harbor wanted to put right up in the name how severe this emotional experience was. And that being Harvard... They put it in Greek. <laughs> Dysphoria is Greek for unbearable. That's, that's the word, uh, dysphoria. And so it's this unbearable emotional pain. But it's also a physical pain because you, people will talk about it feels like they're being punched in the chest. It overlaps perfectly with fibromyalgia because yeah. it is often hard to put in. And, it, and it's, I think another word would be crippling, paralyzing it is so disruptive that it is such a 
weight on your life. I, I tried to come up with an idea for fibromyalgia book cover uh, for my book. And I had this idea having chains wrapped around you. I often use the metaphor having fibromyalgia is like being blindfolded, bound and tortured by an, for an unknown reason without any recourse to get better. And the hope with education is to take the blindfold off, then understand what you're experiencing and getting with this this uh, rejection sensitivity dysphoria syndrome is on the same continuum, just describing a different aspect of all of this. And it really helps us understand how this impacts our processing of pain and how it's so intertwined with our emotional state. Understanding rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria, and the connection with fibromyalgia, I think there's a lot of uh, commonalities between those two. We'll pick up the last part of this six-part interview series with Dr. Dobson. I'm so gracious for what I've learned, and I hope that you've gained a number of insights if you are a patient struggling with fibromyalgia and related issues, if you have a loved one who has fibromyalgia, or if you are a doctor trying to learn more about this. Remember that if you enjoy the podcast, please rate and review it. Hit the follow or like button and share this with others. And if you have any questions, feel free to send me an email at drmichaellens at gmail.com. Until next week, go Team Fibro.